everyday injustice. Too many wrongful convictions, corruption has infected the criminal justice system. Leaving too many people helpless, fighting for their lives instead of receiving justice, people suffer. Is that why they say justice is blind? Hello and welcome to the Everyday Injustice Podcast. I'm your host, David Greenwald. For the past 10 years, we've operated Vanguard Court Watches in California, including San Francisco, Sacramento, and Yolo counties. Our goal? Expose everyday court injustices, and now, more broadly, shine a spotlight on injustices in the entire criminal justice system in the form of wrongful convictions, police and prosecutorial misconduct, and mass incarceration. This podcast hopes to take it a step further and highlight criminal justice reform on a national level. Everyday injustice. Today on Everyday Injustice, we have Charles Bell, an assistant professor of criminal justice sciences at Illinois State University. Welcome to our show. Thank you so much. Happy to be here today. Um, So I understand that uh, you focus a lot of your work on school punishment and the school to prison pipeline. Is that correct? Yes. Mm And I'm really interested Well, I I guess to start, you know, we hear the term school to prison pipeline a lot. Uh, From your perspective, what does that mean? Certainly, that's a great question. Um, The school to prison pipeline is a term that describes how students are uh, punished in public schools and removed systematically and placed on pathways that lead them to prison settings. So a lot of times when students are in school, they may be off task, maybe misbehaving in some cases, or what I found in my research is their behavior may be misinterpreted, and that leads to a suspension. And what school officials don't recognize in many cases is that students get their breakfast and their lunch at school, um, particularly our impoverished students who are highly dependent upon school for food, for survival. So when you suspend a kid from school and they can't eat, now they're in the street looking for food. They're stealing things to survive and they get caught up and they get arrested and now they're in prison. Um, And if they were in school, they would have never been able to or never had social pressure on them to commit those crimes that landed them in prison in the first place. So how'd you get interested in uh, this issue? So I was actually... um, I grew up in Detroit, and I, I lived through some really difficult situations. Um, I saw a lot of my friends get suspended. But at that point in time, as a child, I never really thought much about it. I didn't really see the impact of it until I enrolled at Wayne State University. I was at college, and I'm in the middle of Detroit, which is a predominantly African-American city. And I'm looking around in my classes, and I didn't see anyone that looked like me. And I started wondering, huh, what is going on here? Where are all my peers that I graduated from high school with? I lived in the neighborhood. What sort of social issues were preventing them from enrolling in higher ed? And I remember reading an article that was written by Russell Skiba. A light bulb went off in my head. The term, the school to prison pipeline. Students getting suspended, 
getting arrested and never coming back to school, I actually had a few close associates to me, uh, to me who were suspended and they just never came back to school. So I could visualize this. I could see the machinery of the school to prison pipeline operating in my community. And I realized that this was such an important social problem that uh, as I began to read more had been overlooked at the community level. Uh, we had researchers who were doing the statistical analysis, which is very important work, but was sort of uh, neglected was the groundwork, going into the communities, talking to the parents and to the students and understanding what is it like to be suspended? How is it impacting your life? Um, those are things that were neglected. And I decided I'm going to make a career out of this. I'm actually going to do something about it. And here I am today as a criminal justice professor. And we've had actually interesting other shows uh, where we've talked to attorneys who work with especially inner city kids who end up being criminalized for stuff that, frankly, you know, somebody like me who grew up in suburbia would never have entered the criminal justice system for. She, she told me this crazy story about this boyfriend and girlfriend. They had this fight. She took his cell phone away, slapped him, and, and she ends up getting charged with robbery because a school official who was, you know, one of the school resource officers happened to see her. Um, and that just never would have happened where I went to school. And, and so uh, do you see things like this as well? Certainly. And I've learned over the years as my research has expanded um, beyond Detroit, throughout Michigan and into Illinois, and it's, at this point it's national, that different segments of our country have different punitive mechanisms that they use. Um, in Illinois, ticketing is really a huge issue. They give students tickets for dress code violations and misbehavior. And when you think about this, if you're a poor student, you're already struggling. A uh, hundred dollar ticket, it's going to, what does that do to you? It, it creates even more financial um, duress in your household. Um, and the, in Michigan, suspensions are, are big, uh, multiple suspensions. So when I interviewed students, and these are high school students that I spoke to, I expected them to have between one and five suspensions. These students had 20 to 40 suspensions by the time they reached ninth grade. So just seeing the magnitude of this and expulsion was never used in a lot of these poor districts because these districts had voucher systems where each student was worth $12,000, $10,000 to the district. And if they ex expelled the student, the school would lose money. But if they suspended the student 20 times, that's essentially an expulsion. Um, so you get the money and you don't have to educate the child. And do you see a racial component in this as well? Certainly, certainly. And Black students across the country are disproportionately suspended and expelled in public schools, um, inner city, suburban, it doesn't matter the context. And what do those numbers look like? Because, I mean, we always see these stats. Black students get suspended four to six times more than white mm -hmm. students. Or, I mean, I've thrown that out there. But, I mean, do we know what those stats look like? Certainly. Research shows that Black students make up about 15% of the school-age population and about 39% of those who are suspended, uh, out-of-school suspension specifically. 
and black boys are suspended at three times the rates of white boys and black girls six times the rates of white girls. So there's a clear racial disparity and that disparity has been in place for three to four decades, at least and it's documented in the research. Mm-hmm. And why is that? I, I guess that that's the fundamental question. Why is there such a discrepancy there? That's one of the uh, important aspects of qualitative research. We have the quantitative numbers that document this disparity, but researchers like myself and others that are going into the communities, understanding what it's like to be suspended and asking these really hard questions. And what I've come to understand uh, is a few factors. And I think the most important factor is students' behavior is being misinterpreted by educators, by school administrators. And I'll give you some examples, even out of my personal life, just understanding what I've endured, what other students have endured. I know for a fact, a lot of these students that are living in inner city communities, um, they're surviving and navigating shootings at, at night, shootings in the morning, and it's difficult for them to sleep at night. So if you're in a neighborhood where you don't feel safe, if you're in an environment where you don't feel safe, a lot of kids, they are traumatized. They're up all night and they're not sleeping well. And on the way to school, you're at high alert because you have to catch the bus and there's abandoned buildings in your community. So by the time you get to school, this is the first place where you feel safe. So now you put your head down on the desk out of exhaustion, not out of disrespect to a teacher, not out of, um, I don't want to be here. It's just a simple fact that I've been in this traumatized, high alert state for the last five, 10 hours, and now I'm safe. But to a teacher, it looks like you're off task. You don't care. You don't want to be here. You're being disruptive and you're suspended. And I have other examples where a student who was out of dress code. Now, in this particular case, his mom bought dress coat, you know, uniform, pants, and shirts. Uh, he grew out of them. He was a really tall young man. And she had just lost her job and couldn't afford to replace those uniforms. And the school gave her son a 30-day suspension because he came to school in a blue uniform shirt, or in a blue shirt, and the dress coat was white. And that's just completely inappropriate. Someone could have talked to him, asked him about his financial situation, or they could have just given him a shirt. Um, and I think what we overlook in, in many cases, what educators overlook is that this student was getting up every day. He's catching the bus to get to school in the rain, in the snow. Doesn't matter. He's showing up. He wants to learn. And we're sending him back home because of the color of his shirt. That makes no sense. And what happens when we suspend students? I think that's another aspect that's not well documented until we have qualitative research. A lot of these students, we lose them. We lose them to the streets. We lose them to gang activity because these students, um, they know that I have to survive somehow. And if I can't get the skills I need to survive in school, what else is out there for me? And it also seems like a 30-day suspension is excessive under any circumstance. You know, it'd be one thing if he's like fighting or, you know, uh, engaged in violent activity, but for for a dress code violation? Mm-hmm. And not only is it absurd, it's illegal as well. And that's another thing that my research has uncovered. You know, we assume that every child receives a suspension because they've done something wrong and that the suspension is legitimate. And in many cases, schools are violating the law. 
And that, that's been problematic in a number of instances as well. So how does the suspension rate then hook into, uh, you know, the pipeline to prisons? Mm -hmm. So, and, and I think this is um, some of what I've already discussed where students that get suspended because hey, I'm not in school, I, I need, need food, I need to survive. So they are not in school, they end up committing a minor crime and they end up in prison. So that's one pathway that... I think a lot of scholars have acknowledged, but what my research really shows is that a lot of these students walk into a school and they realize that, hey, I see a guard, I see metal detectors, but when I walk around the corner to go to class, I don't see anyone there and I'm getting jumped. I'm getting targeted in this school. So in order to guarantee my safety in this environment, I have to find an established relationship with peers. I have to uh, find some alliances. You know, you're my friend, you're going to fight with me. You're my friend, you're going to fight with me. And what happens is the failure of school safety measures, these failed safety measures, they facilitate gang-like attachments that students feel compelled to relate, to create in order to survive this space. So now if I'm in a school and I'm engaging in sort of gang-like attachments, well, we know that fighting is criminalized in public schools. So if I'm not protected, I have to fight, and there's no other way. It, it, it's either three options. These are what the students have told me. If I'm confronted by someone and I walk away, I get attacked even more because I'm perceived as weak. If I tell a teacher, that's the ultimate sign of weakness. I get attacked even more. And if I fight and I win, well, I got a suspension, number one. And number two, the toughest kids in the school are going to look at me like, hey, this kid just fought and won. He's tough. I want to test my toughness. So now you got to fight even more. So it's a lose, lose, lose situation for a lot of these kids once they are challenged. And once they're challenged, they get into a fight. It's criminalized. They're off to prison. And what I found is um, this code in school regulates. It, it tells students uh, when to fight back, when to seek alliances. Students understand this code because we, we've heard of the street code. We've heard of the rules of the street. And what I found is that parents who send their children to these schools, they are aware that these schools are not safe. So they're telling their children, hey, you better fight. Hey, you better establish some friends. Um, they're importing the street code into the school and transforming the school environment altogether so that a suspension no longer is something um, that to look down upon. It's actually a sign of status and power and respect. So students learn this from importing the street code, which now becomes the code of the school. And we know that the prisons have a very similar code. Show toughness, show loyalty to other inmates, never side with correctional officers. So now when you look at the streets, the schools, and the prisons, it all looks very similar. So if students are establishing these gang-like relationships in school and fighting in school, it's criminalized and it literally takes them right to prison. And of course, once you get into that system, it's really hard to get out of the system. So, you know, as soon as you get your first contact with law enforcement, as soon as you get your first contact with the courts, it's kind of this other spiral. Exactly. You know, once you get, you know, one felony conviction or one conviction, it's difficult to get a job. 
It's difficult to do anything legitimate. Housing becomes an issue and you're trapped in this cycle. And a lot of these students that I interviewed who had 20 suspensions, that was the reason they had so many suspensions. Um, I don't know what to do. Uh, um, I can't walk away. I can't tell the teacher or I'm going to get attacked. And if I fight back, I'm going to get attacked. I, I get keep getting these suspensions. What am I supposed to do? I'm trapped. And I don't think educators truly appreciate the dilemma that students are in when they tell students, hey, you should just tell a teacher. Well, and parents really uh, express that, hey, you may not have time to tell a teacher. You, your life could be on the line here. There are several students who have died in school fights at public schools. So I think that's important for us to consider that if you don't have time to tell a teacher and you can't walk away, should we be suspending the victim in these altercations? Should everyone get the same punishment? Uh, and why are we criminalizing self-defense? And that's another aspect is that in a lot of these schools, you have school resource officers and, and there have been studies and stats that show, you know, schools with school resource officers automatically criminalizes a lot of activity that in other schools would probably just be dealt with within the normal disciplinary system. Mm -hmm. Exactly. So it becomes a situation where a lot of students who talked about and asked questions about school resource officers and law enforcement in schools, and they told me, I don't feel comfortable because my every move has been watched. I feel like I'm being um, criminalized when I walk in the front door. You know, I have to have extensive pat-downs. I'm looking through my bags. You know, I've had some young ladies who've told me that um, the school thought that they had a weapon on them, which was actually their cell phone, and they were strip-searched illegally in schools. Um, so just imagine being a young lady and you're being strip searched and then you have to come back to school the next day and see this officer. It's traumatizing, it's triggering. And I think we have to question why are we doing this in the first place? And I think that we've tried to deal with a situation of school violence by um, putting these little band-aids on a, what's a broken system at this point. And instead of bringing all of our scholars and researchers and students and parents to the table and really asking, how do we keep our schools safe and inviting everyone to the table? We refuse to listen to certain groups. We don't want to hear from students. You're too young to even be involved in this conversation. When in reality, they're the most impacted by this conversation. They should be at the table. Um, we try to impose safety measures on children when in reality, it would be better implemented if there was sort of top-down and student buy-in so that students would police themselves rather than having, you know, authority figures do all the work and students sort of reject this via the no snitching and the code of the school culture that sets in most of these institutions. So I just think we're going about this all the wrong way. And we've sort of bought into this uh, on culture, you know, we've seen a lot of schools um, respond to schools with, you know, AR-15 assault rifles, arm everybody, arm teachers, and that's just not the solution because um, we've seen law enforcement have many issues with arming themselves and shooting people inappropriately, and can you imagine having a teacher in a school shoot someone inappropriately? It's bound to happen in, in one case. Um, so it's frightening for a lot of kids. Yeah, it seems like the last thing you want to do is put more weapons into a school setting. 
Exactly. Are you starting to see school officials recognize that suspensions are not the way to go? Because there's been discussion, you know, probably the last at least 20 years from what I've seen that, you know, it, uh, this is not the appropriate way to handle these kinds of situations. Certainly. There are a few progressive districts out there that have looked at the research. They've moved away from school suspensions or entertaining a progressive discussion as to what should we do instead of suspending um, students for these minor offenses. But I will also say that there are some districts that have a staunch resistance to reform, which has been surprising and disheartening to see that uh, in, in the face of all the research that we've conducted on the harms of school suspensions, it jeopardizes students' grades, parents have lost their jobs, the school-to-prison pipeline issues, and we still have school administrators who say, yes, we like suspensions, it works great for us, and we see the reform bills, but no one's punishing me for violating the reform bills. I've had administrators tell me that until you produce a bill that punishes me for violating the reform bill, we're going to continue to suspend kids. It works great. This seems counterproductive that a student who is struggling, hey, let's pull them out of school. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And it seems counterproductive to us. To, to those of us who view school as a mechanism that is supposed to produce scholars and workers in our society. And I've since changed my thinking on um, and my view of public schools. Some schools certainly are producing scholars and researchers and attorneys and, and amazing individuals who are going off into innovative career fields. And I think some schools have settled in their ideology of producing inmates. They're, they look at these students and they don't see scholars. They don't see scientists and attorneys and politicians. And they see future criminals. And with that lens, that's the justification they use to deny students access to resources, no books, no pens. You don't need this stuff. You're going to prison anyway. The only thing we want to teach you is stand in a straight file line, wear uniforms, um, and learn the basics, you know, school suspensions. Yeah, in that context, it's great because you're going to prison anyway. We're just giving you a glimpse of your future. And I've had uh, administrators at the highest levels tell me that we can fail these students expensively or we can fail them cheaply. Um, and the idea is failure is that we're going to fail you. You're going to leave this district with a terrible education. You won't have the skills to be successful. And the only thing that you'll be able to do is steal cars, carjack, and maybe push a button at a grocery store or something like that. It, it is, um, it's insulting to a lot of students because they don't realize that they're being lied to, they're being betrayed by a system that has given up on them. And so are you seeing this as, the district throwing up their hands and basically saying, well, we, we can't we can't save everybody, so we're going to get rid of the problems and try to save the ones we can. Is that what they're thinking? Certainly, certainly. And I've had students tell me this, and I've actually heard this myself as a student. I've had teachers tell me, you know, we're going to focus on all the girls because all the boys are going to prison. So what do you, as a student who hears that, how does that impact your psyche, your, your, your will to go to school? A lot of kids would just quit right there because my teacher 
who I believe in, who's supposed to uplift me and tell me all these amazing things, just told me that all the boys are going to prison. Yeah, that, that doesn't seem like a very good uh, answer. Um, so what do you recommend? I mean, what, what is your preferred path out of this problem? I think we need to have some really serious questions with community leaders. Uh, what I would like to see is a national discussion on school violence and safety reform. Um, specifically, how do we keep our schools safe? I feel like this is a national conversation, but it has to occur. Each thing has to have this discussion themselves. This is not a a county issue where we decide as a county how to keep our schools safe because the school in one area could have a very different need, you know, security needs than other schools in other areas. So I think that it's an individual sort of school but issue, but it has to be facilitated nationally because we're seeing school violence across the country, no matter where you are, urban, suburban, or rural contacts. I also think that we have to have a serious conversation about um, where do we see our students, not just our best and brightest students, but even the students that we've disinvested money in, but we've, you know, we intentionally send less money there. These funding formulas that base funding on property taxes that privilege, you know, suburban areas and disadvantage urban areas. Is that equitable? Is that fair? You know, I don't think so. I think we need to reevaluate that. And if we truly want to produce scholars and give everyone an opportunity, we have to start thinking about 21st century models because um, our education system was established in 1830, uh, Horace Mann, and we've been pretty much doing the same thing, give or take a few changes, um, since the early 1900s. It's old, it's outdated, it's ar archaic, and until we have some sort of national dialogue as to how do we move forward and give our children the best opportunities, no matter where they lived, uh, or, or you know, we're going to continue to have these devastating problems what do you think of restorative processes mm -hmm. no i think restorative justice and restorative processes they have a they have an impact when implemented appropriately however when restorative justice was first um uh, acknowledged and first researched i had some issues with it because it was presented as a um, one size all fits solution, and it's it's not. And I can give you a, a good example of some situations where it's not appropriate. So restorative justice brings students, in, or the language that they use is the victim and the offender together, so that they can discuss and come up with a solution together. Um, I have problems with the use of victim, victim and offender because you're re, you're criminalizing students in some cases, and in Driscoll violations like this issue I just gave with 30 day suspensions, um, bringing this student and the school together. Well, the school says, well, why were you? We have rules. Why weren't you in dress code? You're violating the rule. You should have been punished. But there should be discussion as to is this rule so important that we're willing to jeopardize a student's education, number one. And when does a student get an opportunity to really speak for themselves? Uh, at the point in which, and this is one of the serious problems with school suspensions, at the point in which a student is suspended, the entire school mobilizes against them. The teacher, the assistant principal, the principal, everybody mobilizes against them. And who represents the student? Who tells the students their rights? 
who tells the student that they have the right to you know, bring representation, the right to a hearing? No one. And restorative justice does not remedy that problem. No one represents the student. And you have children who are nine and 10 years old. They're in rooms, they're being interrogated. And that's how wrongful convictions occur in mainstream society. So you shouldn't be you know, having children in these rooms without knowing their rights and knowing the law. And we need to think of a process. Someone in the building has to represent the interests of the child. Yeah, that's often the problem with, with kind of the standard situation where you have uh, you know, children interrogated by school resource officers uh, without any kind of representation, without the parents, mm -hmm. uh, without anyone to advocate for their rights. Certainly, and it's, it's devastating. You have lots of kids who are being suspended. And even in my work, they were suspended and accused of doing something wrong when they actually didn't do anything wrong, once you got into the story and understood the details and then thorough investigation, they actually didn't do anything wrong. Uh, I can give you an example of this one. I had one student who was accused of, um, well, he's sitting in a lunchroom and there's fights that typically happen in the lunchroom. And he doesn't pull out a phone. He doesn't record. He stands up and removes himself from the lunchroom and he stands in front of his teacher's classroom waiting for class to start. And an administrator walks by, sees him in the hallway, accuses him of skipping lunch and suspends him for three days. Now, if anyone bothers to, bother to think about this, what child skips lunch? No one. No child ever skips lunch. That's the one period everyone wants to go to. So, but did anyone ask him? Hey, why are you in the hall? How can we help you? No, they just silence him. You're skipping lunch. You're suspended. And they give him a slip and they sent him home. And in my interview, he, he tells me, you know, if they gave me an opportunity to speak, maybe I wouldn't have gotten suspended. But no one cared because he was just guilty on sight. And no one in the building represents his interests. So his voice is never heard. Then these types of incidents have a down cycle impact on these kids because this sets them in the wrong direction, basically. Certainly, it sets them up for prison. I've had students who told me that they were committing, that they were contemplating committing suicide because of the suspensions and the sort of targeting that they felt. Um, I had a few students tell me that, hey, I'm in the building and I see the assistant principal sort of stalking me. Everywhere I go, I see the assistant principal. He's after me, you know, because he's targeted two of my brothers because you have the same last name. And as soon as I enroll, he says, I, you're going to be expelled. And I go in the bathroom. He's in the bathroom waiting for me. I go in class. The assistant principal is right behind me. And, you know, if you're feeling that sort of targeting, it's uncomfortable. You don't want to be in school. You want to be anywhere except for school. And if you can't go to school and you can't go home because your parents are going to know you're not in school, the only place you can really go is the streets. And that's how a lot of kids get up, get in trouble. And the trust issue is just so important, you know, for, for a young person, the breach of adult trust is, is going to have a permanent impact on them. Certainly. Certainly. I've had students, um, I interviewed students who told me that they were on the verge of homeless 
darkness, they were battling, you know, personal issues. And they may have come to school and their clothes may have been dirty. They didn't have access to a washing machine. Um, I left home at 17 and it was tough. I was battling these very similar issues. And I remember seeing students come to school and the teacher laughs at them. Hey, you got toothpaste on your shirt or, you know, hey, you, you, you wore that shirt yesterday. And just a breach of trust is just so profound. The class is laughing at this student and now this student is angry and they turn violent because of this. So we see the student lash out in violence, but we don't see that the teacher is actually the precursor. The teacher is the one that, you know, set fueled the situation by teasing a student in some cases. So how do we deal with those issues? Because it seems like, you know, the teacher probably didn't mean anything by that, but, you know, they didn't understand the impact of what they were saying. How do you, how do you train that out of teachers? Mm-hmm. That's a great question. Um, there's actually one school that I know about in Detroit, and this school, the principal, he noticed that a lot of his staff was complaining about students not doing their homework, they're coming to school late, they're sort of disengaged, and the teachers were coming, they were driving from the suburbs, and they were leaving and going right back in the, on the freeway, so they never drove through the inner city. They'd never seen the problems that these students were navigating. So the principal, he created a field trip for the staff and the teachers. He took them around the neighborhood. Your students are late to school because this bus shows up late every single day. And that's the only way they can get to school. Your students don't do their homework because they get home so late and there's shootings in their community and they can't do their homework safely because they're on the ground dodging bullets, you know? So he really shows them that, hey, your students are committed and we know they're committed because they're showing up every single day. We need to rethink these situations. Maybe you shouldn't send your students home with two hours worth of homework and expect them to finish it when they have to, you know, survive in this environment that they're in. And once the field trip was completed, the culture of that institution turned over overnight. Um, the teachers took a more of an interest in learning about the students. Where do you come from? What are your goals? What are your dreams? Who do you want to be? Um, why are you here today? What do you want to learn? I think these are the things that we do in the higher ed community. We ask students, you know, why did you take this class? How can I help you? And I think it's just shocking that our teachers at the K through 12 level are not given the resources and the time to establish these personal relationships and, and prioritize these personal relationships. Because once you get to know a student and understand them and sort of lock in with that student, you can pull greatness out of a student. Now, I'm living proof of it. My teachers saw more in me than I ever saw in myself. And they were the ones that told me, hey, you can go to college. You can do all these amazing things. I never believed it would be true. And here I am sitting here with three degrees. So um, I'm living proof of what a great teacher can do for our most vulnerable students. So tell us a good story. And, and your own story is a good story too. But tell us something happy to kind of close this segment out. There's lots of success stories. Uh, I'm a living proof of one. I, I, I grew up in Detroit, tough circumstances. I, I put myself um, through college. I got a scholarship. I had a counselor kind of just pulled me to the side and told me I qualify for a four-year scholarship. And I decided to go to Wayne State University because I was already in, in the community and I was on the med school path initially. And I look back and I 
realized that the school to prison pipeline issue was one that needed urgent attention. So I focused my entire sort of life on it. I went and got my master's degree and put myself through that um, in school psychology at Michigan State. And then I went and got my PhD in sociology at Wayne State. And I began my professorship here at Illinois State, and I'm going up for tenure in the fall. Um, and that's a, if, if there is a happy story, that's it. That, that's the one, because I'm so proud of um, what I've been able to accomplish. I've met so many people on this journey, and I hope my trajectory inspires children and teachers across the country that even your most vulnerable students I used to sit in the back of the room. Now I'm in the front of the room. And then finally, tell us about your book, Suspended. Yeah. So in Suspended, uh, which is published by Johns Hopkins University Press, uh, I interviewed 160 uh, Black students, parents, and teachers, and asked them about their experiences with suspensions and how they impacted students' grades, parents' employment, uh, and their views on school safety measures. Um, I, I learned a lot. I think that the book has been widely received in education, criminal justice, social work, and sociology, um, and, and psychology as well. And I highly recommend it. Uh, it's very informative, and I think that people will love it. And I think that in the in the midst of school suspensions, I think a lot of researchers go right in to school suspensions. How does a school suspension impact a student? Whereas what I do is I create and I show readers what the structure of a school that focuses on suspensions, what does that look like? Because it's the structure that needs to be addressed. And I think, you know, using Detroit as a backdrop to show the political neglect, the theft of resources and mismanagement of resources politically, um, sets the stage for the use of suspensions and expulsions in many cases so that readers can get a very thorough understanding of why this is such a significant problem and how we should just target the system rather than just suspensions. Because as I said before, if you target suspensions, then you know Illinois has ticketing issues and Texas has ticketing issues. So it's not just suspension and I'm moving into seclusion and restraint issues too. It's a system that needs to be addressed. It's not just one particular issue. Mm -hmm. Well, I want to thank you for coming on. This has been fascinating. Um, a really important topic that uh, I don't think gets nearly enough attention because I, I feel like this is at the core of a lot of, uh, you know, society's problems. I do too as well. And I'm, I'm hoping that readers will pick up suspended and really see that when you look at the criminal justice system, the start of that is in our classrooms. All right. We've been talking with Charles Bell about the school, the prison pipeline. This has been Everyday Injustice. I'm your host, David Greenwald. Join us again next time for more Tales from the Injustice System. Thank you to George Powell and Norman Mousequake Barrett for the use of our opening Everyday Injustice. You can see more of George's music at www.justiceforgeorgepowell.com. That's justiceforgeorgepowell, all one word, dot com.